So I don't know. I've always sort of lived in language. We've all felt a part of that story. How I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it. You're listening to Retellings, the Washington University Creative Writing Podcast Series. Thanks for tuning in to Retellings. I'm Rebecca King, and today I talked to the poet Mary Jo Bang about her recent translation of Dante's Inferno, before meeting with medievalist Jessica Rosenfeld to learn a little more about Dante and the literature of the Middle Ages. Mary Jo Bang is a professor of English at Washington University and the author of six books of poetry, including Elegy, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was a New York Times notable book. Today we will be discussing her latest work, a translation of Dante's Inferno, which was published by Grey Wolf Press in 2012. In this book, Mary Jo examines the very practice of translation by going beyond translating one language into another. She replaces some of the more obscure medieval characters with contemporary figures for today's audience to recognize, including Eric Cartman from South Park in The Circle for Gluttons. I thought we would start at the moment of inception. In the introduction of your translation, you said that it began with Caroline Bergvall's poem, Via, 48 Dante Variations. Yes, this is an interesting poem because she has arranged these 47 translations of the first three lines alphabetically. That repetition and repetition with revision is rather haunting because the first three lines of the Inferno are really rather simple in the middle of what we call our life. I came to myself in a dark wood. The right path had been lost. Yet, each translator chose to say that rather simple statement differently. And I was struck that there is no right way to translate something, to carry over into one language what has been said in another. As I'm sitting there reading that, I thought, well, how would I do it? And knowing that there were over 200 translations in English, I felt that one could stray a little bit from a literal translation. Now, in a poem, and Dante's Inferno is a poem, we often have sound patterning. The original has a very elaborate rhyme scheme that is only possible in Italian and other Romance languages that have a frequent A, I, E, or O ending. So it's very hard to have the kind of rhyme scheme he had, which was something called terza rima. And it's an interlocking pattern with the first and third lines rhyming. And then that non-rhyming second line comes down and becomes the first and third line of the next three-line stanza. And so you have this kind of dovetailing of rhymes, which makes for a very particular kind of music. And I thought, well, what is the music of contemporary poetry? And it's alliteration, so the repetition of consonant sounds, assonance, the repetition of vowel sounds, and rhyme, yes, but not necessarily end rhyme. We often bury the rhyme in the center of the line, or we use something called slant rhyme, where the sounds are similar, but not exact. In addition, I thought a lot of these translations sound old-fashioned. The tone is rather elevated, and some of them incorporate words like thoust and canst. And it occurred to me that the translator wanted to gesture to the fact that this is an old poem, 
And I thought that might not be the best thing for this poem. Dante made a very clear decision to write the poem in the vernacular, the spoken language of his day. The usual language in which poems were written was literary Latin, and he decided not to do that, and he wrote letters explaining his decision because it was so radical. He decided that Latin is noble and it's frozen in time, and he wanted a language that would change. The vernacular, the language with which we talk to each other, has emotional resonance whenever it's spoken. It has the history of all the things that are said in it, the everyday things. And so that was my argument for using contemporary colloquial English and including even slang, because that's the language we speak. And it seemed that that was consistent with his desire to write this in the vernacular. Dante wants us to see ourselves in this mirror of hell because he's trying to show us not only the consequences of our bad behavior in terms of the afterlife, he's trying to be our guide by taking us through all of these possibilities and showing us how to be a better self, how to realize our ideals, and what might happen if we don't. Is that what you feel is most relevant for readers today? I do. I think the poem is seeped in Catholic theology, but that was the zeitgeist in which Dante lived. He didn't have the kind of pluralistic society that we have today. Certainly, belief systems take up the idea of punishment for the afterlife. But the idea of those belief systems and any belief system, even a secular humanistic belief system, is that we have an opportunity here while we are on earth to exercise the kinds of humanity that we feel are the most effective in terms of caring for others who can't care for themselves, sharing the benefits of all of our gifts. So I think Dante is very invested in that as well. He creates this frame of Catholic theology, but it's a mashup of Catholic theology, of Greek and Roman mythology, and Tuscan politics, and all of those provide different lessons. So it's not that he's preaching, it really is a much more eclectic way of looking at good and evil and the principles of right living. As you've mentioned, our world today is much more secular. Do you think that popular culture has in a way become a kind of religion? I don't think popular culture has become a religion, but it enables us to have stories that we share. If we were all believers in one belief system, then we would share all of those stories, but we aren't. And these other stories are things that we all know, or many of us know. Sometimes they're related to class, education, or even age, but in general, we all know certain characters. We know Superman, we know Jekyll and Hyde. We can use these figures to represent stories that surround them. Good and evil, for instance, are embodied in Jekyll and Hyde. And so it's a shorthand method of talking about those morality lessons. The opportunities I took to insert popular culture figures were places where the commentary says that there was no identifiable historical person. So Cartman, for instance, in the original, 
is someone that researchers have tried to link to the past and have not been able to. So they think he was a purely invented character. He's in the Circle Four Gluttons, and in the original, that character's name is Jocko, which is an abbreviation for a longer name, and when the name is abbreviated, it means piggy or hog. And the fact is that Eric Cartman, in several episodes, is called Little Piggy. So I replaced Jocko, who a reader today wouldn't know, by putting in Cartman, in addition saying, my name is Cartman, they sometimes call me Piggy. I always worry that people will think that I've just kind of randomly scattered popular culture references throughout the Inferno, but each one has been done very thoughtfully. And as an exercise in translation, I didn't want this poem to become a quaint literary artifact. And I think that too often it's read that way. I wanted this poem to be read in the way that it would have been by, by those people who read it originally. I wanted it to be as funny, as terrifying, as moving, as tender. I wanted it to show the range of human behaviors. I wondered your sense of ownership over the book now. It's, it's Mary Jo Bang's Inferno. It's still Dante's Inferno, <laughs> uh, make no mistake. There's some kinds of sound patterning that is like poems that I've written, but there's also a great deal that's nothing like my poems. I learned a lot about writing poetry from working on this poem, and I think that some of it I've incorporated into poems that I've written since. It'll be interesting to see whether people make that connection. Every translator makes something with the original author. I think that the difference is that a lot of translations do sound alike. Mine, if you compare it to someone else's, has enough difference in it that there's none that you would feel, oh, she really just extended this translation. So I think that that's why it is Mary Jo Bang's translation. I think there's nothing quite like mine. Yeah, I think in the introduction you compared it to a musician covering someone else's song. I think that's where my voice, the song hasn't changed, but you hear my voice. I want Dante to be heard first and my voice second. After meeting with Mary Jo, I was interested in learning more about Dante and the influences on medieval poets especially the intersection between Catholic theology and classical Latin works. Jessica Rosenfeld, assistant professor of English at Washington University, talked to me about the evolution of literature and education in the medieval era. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Jessica. Oh, you're very welcome. And we're going to start discussing medieval literature. Where do we start with that? <laughs> Where do we start? I mean, it's a huge field. It's a thousand years of literature. The dates are up for grabs, but usually 5th century to 15th century or thereabouts are the sort of typical boundaries of medieval literature, starting with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and then going up until 
pick your marker, um, the Reformation, the beginnings of print culture in England, often the date that is used for the end of the Middle Ages is 1485, which is the Battle of Bosworth Field and the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. So these are always artificial moments, and obviously people didn't wake up and decide everything had changed <laughs> that day. We're in the Renaissance. But it's a huge span of time, and it encompasses for the Western Middle Ages, which is my field of scholarship. It is mostly Latin literature, and then also the beginnings of vernacular literature. Wow, I didn't know it was so long. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So who would you list as some of the most influential writers of the period? Again, I know it's a thousand years. Sure, (laughs) right. I mean, from an English perspective, I would say Chaucer. But I think, you know, if one is taking a, a larger view Chaucer might not make the top of the list. If you're talking about the early Middle Ages and Latin works, St. Augustine, who actually was writing before the Middle Ages, he was writing in the late antique period, was hugely influential. But also an author like Boethius, The Constellation of Philosophy, which was written in the beginning of the 6th century, was read by almost anyone, you know, any poet. They were reading classical texts, they were reading the Aeneid, they were reading Ovid. Latin was a living language up through the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, too. People were still composing in Latin. And England, if you were a poet, you would be equally likely to write in French or Latin as in English. As far as vernacular works, Dante, (laughs) the Divine Comedy, was immediately and hugely influential, even poets for whom Italian wasn't their first language. But Dante himself was reading a poem that I teach called The Romance of the Rose, which is a French poem from the 13th century. It's quite long, and it's a dream vision, which was a really popular genre. It's about a young man who falls in love with a flower. (laughs) So it's an allegory. And that was actually, aside from the Divine Comedy, The Romance of the Rose probably survives in the most manuscripts, which is how we tend to get a sense of popularity. You touched on these writers returning to Ovid or some of the classical Greek writers. What made them turn to those authors? A lot of reasons. In terms of Ovid and Virgil, those were the writers that they were reading in order to learn Latin. So every boy who was attending grammar school was reading the Metamorphoses, was reading the Aeneid. So it was just a common canon for everyone that's part of their education. But one of the authors that I'm most interested in in my research is Aristotle. In the 13th century, it was a a very active time for translating works from Greek into Latin. And so in the 13th century, the ethics and the rhetoric were being translated. And because Aristotle was already known to be this really important figure, he was called the philosopher. If you just refer to the philosopher, People knew you were talking about Aristotle. These works were immediately understood to be very important. They were being studied in the universities. But they were also very controversial because Aristotle didn't know anything about the Christian God. And he was talking about things like virtue, how to live the good life, what is happiness, without any reference to Christianity. And so medieval theologians, people like Thomas Aquinas, were studying Aristotle and writing commentaries on him and trying to grapple with the fact that this highly esteemed philosopher was making statements about human life and and human happiness that didn't quite fit with religious doctrine. If people listening wanted to get a grasp of medieval literature, where should they start? 
Well, they could certainly start with Dante. <laughs> the Inferno is probably the most popular part of the Divine Comedy. It certainly was influential on Italian poets, on Boccaccio and Petrarch, but also on English poets as well. And even though the Divine Comedy wasn't fully translated, I don't think until the early 19th century, poets were still reading him. Chaucer was reading Dante and Milton was reading Dante. And you can see the way that his language is suffused throughout their works. The wife of Bath mentions Dante in her tale, in the, in the Canterbury Tales. But there are also moments where Dante isn't named, but there will just be a stanza plucked from the Paradiso that shows up in, in Chaucer's poetry, being alive to and aware of the way that Dante is just sort of undergirding much of what Chaucer wrote is quite important, and that's true for Milton as well. I mean, Dante is also interesting for thinking about the way people read literature in the Middle Ages, the combination of a text, but also commentary and also illustrations of that text. And so Dante was one of the first, if not really the first, vernacular poet who sort of spawned a commentary. We find manuscripts all the time of Virgil's Aeneid or Ovid covered in notations in what we call glosses by learned commentators. But to do that to a vernacular work is really unusual. They, they're not usually seen as deserving of that. But Dante was immediately, and he invited it, setting himself up as a vernacular poet that would really be the heir to the classical poets. And that's I think that's one of the wonderful things about reading Mary Jo Bang's translation of the Inferno, is that there's something very medieval about it because you have the poem itself which is suffused with the language of more modern poets like Shakespeare and Milton and Hopkins and Eliot and others but it also has those wonderful illustrations right sort of like an illuminated manuscript and then it also has the end notes of each canto which read sort of like a medieval commentary there's many layers of commentary that she's giving us would common people have heard most of these tales mm. or just the learned? That's something that, that's changing in the 14th centuries. Literacy is actually a, a complicated question. To be literate in this period meant to be able to read Latin. So reading in the vernacular didn't necessarily make you a literate person. But even if you couldn't read, that didn't mean that you didn't have access to these works because they were most often read aloud because manuscripts were really expensive. And so you might have one that belongs to a household. So even the nobility might not be literate but would be listening to works being read. And there are actually scenes in medieval literature of people sitting around listening to, to, to works being read. What do you think about these particular works is so timeless that we return to today? That's a big question that I think about a lot, actually. I think that we often think about the Middle Ages as a kind of point of origin. It's the origin of literature in the way that we think about it. It's the origins of, of literature in the vernaculars. And it's really the Middle Ages in which love between a man and a woman becomes a serious theme for literature. You know, many people have made the argument that the form that love takes in these texts of suffering love, of difficulty, of love as a 
a painful experience that nevertheless somehow makes you a, a better person, that it's the height of personal experience. And the kind of idealizations of romantic experience is something that is a legacy that the Middle Ages has left us. Love relationships were often used as a way to think about philosophical questions like what makes someone happy or how can you understand your own free will or how can you ever know the will or thoughts of another person. Many thanks to Mary Jo and Jessica for speaking with us today about their work. If you're interested in hearing more of Mary Jo's translation, you can find a reading selection on our website. Thanks again for tuning into Retellings, a part of Hold That Thought at Washington University. Join me next week when I meet with essayist Edward McPherson to discuss the slipperiness of truth and memory in nonfiction.